Hi, everyone, and welcome to our second Big Read podcast. I'm Erica Gottfriedson, and I'm here with Emily Pearson and Jason Abad. Today, we're going to be discussing language as magic within Naomi Novik's Spinning Silver. What I'm going to do to start us off is I'm going to have my friends here introduce themselves by telling us a little bit about uh, who they are and, and what year they are in school, things like that. And then I will round us off and we will jump into our conversation. So Emily, do you want to get us started with an introduction? Sure. Um, hi, guys. As Erica said, I'm Emily Pearson. I am a second year master's student at the English department in Purdue um, in the literary theory and culture program. Awesome. What about you, Jason? Uh, all right. So uh, I'm uh, Jason Abad. Uh, I am uh, a third year PhD student in the um, uh, Literature Theory Culture Program at Purdue. Um, and um, is there anything else that you wanted us to that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and then I'll round us off. As I mentioned, my name is Erica. I am also a third year, like Jason, a third year PhD student in the LTC program uh, in the English department at Purdue. Uh, I also serve as the assistant director of the Big Read. So I've been doing a lot of the event planning and things like that for the Big Read and enjoying that position. I also am teaching intro to fiction this semester where my students are actually reading Spinning Silver right now. Uh, so I want to give my students a shout out. Hi, students. I, I uh, hope that you are listening in and enjoying this conversation. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We are going to have three segments for today. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is the concept of names within the text and the importance of names, particularly as they can function as kind of a, a version of magic in the text. And then our second segment, we'll be thinking about moments where language um, can possess as much, if not more power than magic. Um, and then we'll wrap up our conversation with just a general discussion of Novik's interest in language and storytelling, um, particularly, you know, how the, the text is thinking about retelling Rumpelstiltskin and just breaking down uh, stereotypes and, and narratives that we can build about other people and things like that. Uh, I do want to give a brief spoiler alert that I imagine we will be discussing most parts of the text. We're not going to start, stop ourselves from uh, talking about the text in full. So if you haven't listened, uh, listened to or read the entire novel in full, uh, listen accordingly. Okay, uh, so let's get started with our first segment. So here's what we're going to talk about. Um, the idea of names, naming, is really at the core of this novel. We see it all throughout uh, this text. And so we see for instance, uh, that the Starrett King will not give his name to Miriam, um, and that Miriam, once she gets to the Starrett King, uh, Kingdom, she bestows names on various Starrett uh, servants that she meets. We also see a moment where the Starrett King gains power over Mernatius' demon by sharing his name. So let me just open with uh, the, the question, why are characters' names significant in the novel, and how maybe does the concept of naming work as magic in a sense? Okay, I'll jump in. Um, so I think the concept of naming and the power behind it kind of changes depending on where you are. The cultural context matters so much and how names work. Um, 
for instance, for Miriam's family, name seems to be a way of like tying them to their Jewish heritage, even though they're not in a country that's predominantly Jewish and they're discriminated against there. Um, but it means something completely different to the Sterics, where knowing someone's name gives you a power over them and the Steric King just doesn't want anyone to know his name because he doesn't want to be under anybody else's control. So in some senses, it ties people together and other senses it can um, kind of keep people at a distance. Absolutely. So maybe to add on uh, a little bit to that, um, in a way kind of uh, specifically about, um, you know, the, how the steric um, use names, um, to know someone's name in that sense is almost to know their nature. Mm. Um, so in that knowledge of, you know, their nature is kind of uh, grants power over over the individual. Uh, so in the in the scene, there's this scene where the Stark King encounters the, the demon Chernobogan. He calls him him devourer and says, you know, I've while I haven't seen your face before, I, I know your name. And so it has this kind of meaning built in there that, you know, almost like um, when you say, you tell someone like your rep uh, reputation precedes you, you know, or I, or I know who you are um, by that. So in this instance, we 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 come to know Chernobog by um, by that name, Devourer. There's there's also and there's also some um, reference um, a reference that um, uh, Novik is building in here with with that name. So you have that um, uh, the uh, I, I suppose some um, a reference to um, uh, Slavic gods in in here as well. The Chernobog is a is a reference to um, one of the Slavic gods, um, literally by the the same name. Um, sometimes called the the Black God, and um, in 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 that way, we, we're we're tying it into to additional lore here. That's really cool. I trying to piece together, I think what both of you are saying is this idea that naming can, exactly what you said, Emily, can mean different things in different contexts. And so in um, all of the instances of naming in the novel, naming is powerful. Um, it gives some kind of power, but then the power looks different depending on the context. And so we have the moments where Miriam is, is bestowing names upon the servants and there's a power, there's a, a magical force even maybe there in terms of binding them together. But that looks very different from the moment, Jason, that you bring up where uh, the, the Star King says, the demon's name and has power over him. Uh, so there seems to be, I think, a difference, but also maybe a similarity there as well. What did we make of the moments where um, Miriam bestows names upon the, the servants um, as well as Fleck's daughter in uh, the Star Kingdom? What did you make of those moments? It, to me, one of the most powerful moments in this book about magic is like kind of one of the more simplistic ones um, where um, Miriam names Fleck's daughter and the name she ends up giving her is Rebecca Bob Fleck, which I think means something very different in this culture than how the Steric um, usually interpret names. Um, so the, like, the last part of the name Bob Fleck means daughter of Fleck, um, 
which is interesting because Fleck had talked about not wanting her daughter's father to um, be part of her life anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so she kind of creates this like bond with the mother more so in the naming than like traditional father like setup. Um, and then by naming her Rebecca, not only is it like a very traditional Jewish name, pulling her into like that culture a little bit, but it also means um, to bind in Hebrew. So it's a way of not only like binding Miriam with this child, but also with this culture and kind of blending them together in a way that um, I think sort of helps uh, Miriam come back to the Sarah kingdom at the end of the book when there's sort of some doubt about whether she will. Absolutely. And in a way, this is also kind of talking about how um, we as people connect ourselves to other people. Um, in, um, in the book, uh, Nova kind of um, connects this to, um, talks about this almost as, a, as if it's a, a kind of magic that we have in the real world. Um, um, the, the way she, she uh, connects it to, to Jewish culture and naming and, and that. There's, there's another scene where um, um, Miriam and her mother are, uh, and, and um, a couple others are, are waiting in front of the, the gate to Viznia and they, they meet another Jewish, uh, Jewish woman. They, they see her by, by her, her attire. And, and uh, but really when the way that they bond, that they, they realize their, their connection uh, is, by, um, is by reciting the names that they know of the people that they know. And it's almost as if, right, you know, that, that act of not, not just the names themselves, but the act of um, calling up the people that you know, uh, but by naming the people that you know that you, you make bonds with with people that you um, you wouldn't otherwise have a connection with. Yeah, I really like that point of um, Novik kind of gesturing towards the idea that this is something that we possess, right? That kind of um, extends beyond the novel. And I think that that ties back to uh, the experience that Miriam has in relating to the Stark Kingdom. We see when she is going to the Stark Kingdom and, and you know, the Stark King has said, I'm going to marry you. I'm going to take you with me. And she says, wait, I don't even know your name. And he doesn't give the name at the beginning of the relationship. Um, I think that in kind of her initial interactions and um, movements throughout the Stark Kingdom, we see this lack of name uh, building into this kind of more general lack of knowledge or connection that she has to the Stark people and to their world. Uh, she isn't comfortable there. She doesn't have a good rela relationship with the Stark King. She doesn't know his name. And so it's easy in those moments where she doesn't know his name to continue to kind of demonize him or make him the monster in her life. But in these moments when she then starts to have names of the Stark servants, uh, as well as Fleck's daughter, I think even though it's maybe not explicitly articulated, I think those are the moments that she starts to shift in her understanding of like 
this is this is a place just like my home this is a place where um you know these people have identities they have names they are worthwhile uh, and she starts to maybe build a bond and feel more like she could make her home there and i think you mentioned that too emily so um it plays into this beautiful idea of kind of just watching her shift in her interactions with them along the lines of kind of how she comes to know and give names to the people that are there. Yeah, and I think it's also really important. I, I just thought of this, we're talking about it. Um, the the Stuart King, he withholds his name for Miriam for so long, um, but once he really accepts her and once he like comes back with, to her for marriage on her terms, he does finally tell her his name. And so like at that point, not only is this her home, but like it's her home with the steric king. Like he, I, I feel like it's the major turning point for him the first time he allows himself to be like vulnerable and like build a new community with Miriam. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not sure if I think at the end we learn that she does find her find out what his name is, but that, that you know it's kind of a theme going um, throughout the novel that it, it's it's hard for her to even empathize with him because she doesn't know uh, she doesn't know his name, um, and you know as we get even to that last part you know uh, of the of the text where where she she's trying to find some you know. Um, way to free him and she's explaining to him um, what it is that you know that the Starek have done to the people there uh, she, she 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 mentions that she's not really freeing him for for his own sake but for his people's sake and I think it's important that she knows their name you know and there's this kind of um and that, and that kind of signals that she's she has a difficulty empathizing with him, but really what knowing their name is that that kind of critical turning point there that she's she's able to understand his people. Exactly. I think it's I think there's even a line where she says, you know, I remember Flex daughter and that's kind of the motivation that I have and um, there's a child and I know that this child is going to be consumed if I don't step in. And so there's a level of empathy there that she didn't have at the beginning. Uh, and I think that that relates to other storylines as well. You know, we have six narrators in this text by the end of it. And even in a, in a more informal way, I think that we see naming functioning in like Wanda's relationship with Miriam as well, because uh, I was actually talking to my students about this just this week. The very first interaction that Wanda can remember with the money lender, which is Miriam's father, she calls him a servant of the devil, which is again, kind of building into um, stereotypes about Jewish moneylenders. And it's a narrative, it's a language that has been used around the town to demonize the moneylender and his family. Um, and so she kind of replicates that language, even though there isn't in that interaction that she has with him, there isn't any evidence that he deserves that. In fact, in the very same moment, her father beats her, which is just interesting juxtaposition. Uh, but then we watch 
that language completely collapses. It doesn't hold in her interactions with Miriam's family once she starts working for them. They are no longer servants of the devil. In fact, they build an environment of love and acceptance for her and her brothers in ways that she didn't even get in her own home. And so I think exactly what you were saying, Jason, at the core of the idea of naming here is empathy and and how do we relate to people and naming um, whether that's a bad name like servant of the devil or something like that versus a name with more intimacy seems to be just so central to the to the idea of how we build empathy for other people okay so i think that this is a good place to move uh, to our second segment. And so we've talked about naming and, and the sense of how naming can, naming can work to bind, uh, to build community, but also how it can uh, give a sense of power over uh, another individual. Another thing that I'm really interested in in the novel is the moments where language without even bearing any sense of magic can almost rival the force and the power that magic has. And so what I'm thinking about is these moments that the characters and specifically, I think are, are women characters and Irina, Miriam, and maybe even Wanda use language to express power, uh, to manipulate their situations, to gain knowledge um, in ways that maybe even their power can't um, allow them to do. So I have a few examples that we can dive into, but first I'm just interested in hearing, um, is this something that maybe you also noticed as you were reading and did you find it as interesting as I find it, uh, this idea of language being such a, such a powerful force, uh, for these characters? Yeah, I, I think, um, there's a lot of, um, power that, uh, the, the text gives a lot of power to language, uh, and, Initially, um, I, I think what I noticed was the, <clears throat> what, what stands out most is the, the power of language, the, the carefully crafted words that some of the characters use, um, their ability to manipulate other people and uh, how, they, um, how they use that to um, give themselves um, power over others where they wouldn't otherwise have it, um, either because of lack of magic or a lack of social position or something, some something of the sort. Um, but um, you know, there, there's also um, another thing I noticed um, is that th there are places where one's lack of mastery over over language um, <clears throat> can sometimes put one in a um, uh, Put, put the characters in, in positions of um, where they have uh, where they have no power. Oh, interesting. Um, so it, it's it's interesting um, at the at the start of the novel where when Miriam starts um, collecting um, uh, money for her father, she's she's able to. Um, uh, to, to use language to her advantage by um, by telling the townsfolk that um, um, she has the law on her side and and what will happen if they don't um, if they don't pay up that sort of thing um, uh, but um, there's there's one scene where she's um, she kind of loses control over over, over language and and her mother is is 
um, expressing how, how sad she is that her child had to grow up so quickly that she had to harden her heart. Um, and uh, Miriam lashes out and she says, you know, what, what are you sorry for pretty much like that you have a child that can turn uh, silver into gold, right? And she doesn't really, she says the wrong thing in the wrong place. She's in earshot of Oleg, the, the slave driver who, who later hears this and tries to, to rob her. And, and um, this is also the, um, the moment that sets a lot of the story in action where she says this um, and the Starek hear her, mm-hmm. they, they misunderstand her. So her inability to, to communicate in this instance um, uh, eventually causes her a lot of trouble. They, they take her literally when that's not what she means, uh, the, the Starek. And um, someone who doesn't have her best interest, um, she, tells them things and they understand what maybe they shouldn't have. That's fascinating. And I had not thought about that when I was reading that moment, but I think it's such a good point of how uh, language and even more generally, like the knowledge of how to use language um, seems to be so central to the character's success or lack of success. And I think in the instance that you're bringing up, Jason, it's uh, Miriam is still in the stage where she's kind of growing her abilities uh, related to her business and uh, you know the knowledge that comes with that. And we haven't seen her maybe fully matured yet. Um, and you're right, that sets off everything. That is absolutely fascinating. What about you, Emily, what do you think? Yeah, I'm still thinking about that. That's just so interesting. Um, But before I was thinking about Wanda and how to her using language, like she grows in it and she finds her voice um, and there's there's a power and a safety in that for her. But in the beginning of the book, when she's in such desperate circumstances, living with a very abusive father, um, learning what not to say also has a power for her when, Miriam starts paying her in addition to paying down the debt her father owes. Um, And Wanda keeps the money she's being paid, her wages a secret because she knows that um, her father would take it from her, but she holds on to that secret and onto the money as a way of like securing a potential future for herself. And and that gains a little bit of agency in not saying something, which I think is maybe a little different than how we usually think of language, but for her, it has real meaning and not really a sense of safety, but the hope of like a potential future safety in it. Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. And I think the thing that's so interesting to me about um, these three women that we have, Miriam, Irina, and Wanda, is how all three of them are around magic like even in that instance that you're talking about Emily there's this white tree that is the mother Uh, I don't know how we would maybe describe that relationship but um, she has this tree that protects her that literally keeps her away from the Stark road at one point that gives her uh, the things that she needs to make like a tea I think it is for Sergei Sergei when he um is has his soul taken away by the the star king and so power is available or or magic more specifically is available to her 
but it becomes less about the magic and, and the moments that she's interacting with her father and more about exactly what you're saying, language and how she uses it. Um, and that builds to this moment where her father is trying to marry her off literally for the price of alcohol. And she says, no, and it's not the tree in that moment that is protecting her from this future that she doesn't want. It's her ability to know when to speak and how to speak that carves out some space for her uh, desires for her own life. Obviously, uh, it's a complicated situation, right? Because the father ends up dying and it doesn't go maybe completely to plan. Uh, but also it gives her the ability to have a little bit of control over her life in ways that she wouldn't have had if the father remained alive. I, I think I really appreciated it, how the, how the text repeatedly juxt, uh, juxtaposes these, um, these scenes of, of actual magic with, um, I guess almost like everyday magic, magic that we would have in our, our world, this, this ability to use language in a given uh, social context and, and how that kind of um, becomes like magic for characters. Um, I, I also find it kind of interesting to, to compare um, you know, these, um, these three characters that we're talking about to say, for example, uh, Mernatius, uh, you know, as, as he's, he, I think he remarks in one, um, in one point that he doesn't have the kind of social awareness, this political awareness that uh, Irina has, uh, you know, that he might use in, in the way that she does to, to manipulate his surroundings. So this, this character who, who has this social position who, who would otherwise have a, a certain amount of power is rendered powerless by his inability to, uh, to use language to take advantage of his social position. Absolutely. Well, in both situations with Miriam and Irina, we have um, maybe their most like impressive moments in the novel are coming exactly what you're saying, Jason, not from these moments of like high pure power, but just their ability to use their knowledge to manipulate the situation, to navigate, to maneuver through the situation. So what I'm thinking here is of the moment where Miriam has told the Star King that she will change these three massive rooms uh, of silver all to gold. She starts that process. She's like, oh crap, there's literally no way that I am going to be able to finish this. And she finds a loophole through language, through the Star King saying, the, the silver in this room. And so she has the servants move the silver that she knows she's not gonna be able to change out of the room. And so there, it's not magic. You know, she does some of it and that's impressive and that's cool, but that's not ultimately how she succeeds. It's her ability to think, to use her knowledge to kind of exploit the situation and, and find a loophole within the language. And I think we see a similar situation with Irina and how she ultimately defeats Chernabog the demon, where um, he comes back after this big fight in the Star Kingdom and tries to start consuming all of the people in uh, the palace. And what we see is that Irina, the deal that she made with the fire demon is that he won't touch the people that she loves as long as she delivers the Stark King 
to the fire demon. What we then find out is that her language was very intentional. The people that she loves, her people is actually her entire community. And so she has protected not even just herself and kind of her close circle, but she's protected the entire everyone, everyone that that she has power over in this um, kingdom. And so in both of those situations, it's not magic. It's language that she's that both uh, of the women characters are using very intentionally to navigate the situations. And it I love it because it like directly contrasts the start king and the fire demon and the the power that they have that is solely rooted in magic. Do you have any thoughts about that? Oh, I was just fascinated listening to you talk about it. Yeah, Irina and Miriam really, really know how to use language to their advantage. Every time I think about Miriam, like focusing on in the room, I'm like, oh, she knows how to deconstruct a sentence. Yes. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's really interesting how how important language is and especially in that task, like thinking about what's actually said and how you can complete like the task given to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And that like she has to change all of the silver in the room into gold and the changing of the silver to gold is something that's a very solitary task, something that only she has the power to do and that she's alone in. But the second part, the in the room part is where she's able to like bring people in to get help to like take something that's essentially isolating and like make friends in it and help other people out along with herself um, in a way that when they're successful, all of them benefit from it. And um, like she grows in power too. So the language in a way becomes more important than like the actual magic power because she wouldn't have been able to do it without that. But also every time she completes the task successfully, she's able to complete the task more easily in the future. She becomes more powerful, um, stronger. So the fact that she was able to capitalize on what the language meant made the magic even more powerful. Like the magic is just so underpinned by her use of language. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. Jason, any final thoughts on this section? Yeah, um, so... On one hand, I really like the characters in, in this, you know, in these positions of, of uh, in these kind of oppressed positions are able to leverage their situation by language. But I, I think one of the, one of, I, I, I kind of had mixed feelings about this use of, of you know, um, deceiving other people with language. Right, because that's an instance where you're where you're actively making communication fail, um, and they're they're using that to their advantage. So, um, I, I I almost I almost prefer like the instances where there's power in making yourself understood, mm-hmm. uh, because on one hand, that's that's really how a lot of this story resolves by freeing the Staric King. It's it's only instead of deceiving him, instead of tricking him, it's only by making um, making the the people of Lithos understood as a people by by communicating effectively, by using language to to make your 
make yourself known that that she's able to convince him that he's in the wrong um, and then give him reasons why he should uh, he should make uh, make a deal with her and allow her to free him in exchange for um, leaving the people of Lithvas alone, not uh, not bringing back the winter, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But also in a sense, that's what Novik is doing with this entire story is she's taking these um, these kind of anti-Semitic stereotypes of, of the Jewish moneylender and she's she's giving us these characters and, and ex having them explain themselves to us in a way that, that makes us um, empathize with them. And so that's, that's kind of this whole act of, of, of retelling um, at work here. It, it acts by making these characters known to us rather than obscuring them, rather than relying on <clears throat> not just the, um, not just our, our, um, you know, not by allowing us to to misunderstand something. That's such an interesting idea of the maybe the motivations, I guess, behind the different ways that language can be used as power. And I think to unite maybe the first segment and the second segment before we move into the final one is this idea of language, or maybe more specifically that um, language is used as, at different points. I'm specifically thinking of the relationship between Miriam and the Star King. Um, the language that they use with each other changes throughout the text. And so, um, you know, the point that you and I are talking about, Jason, where uh, Miriam is manipulating language a little bit, there's, there's a level of deceit there is still at this moment where this, that Miriam doesn't know his name. He is nothing more to her than this husband that is trying to trick her and exploit her, her for her money making ability. And I think that we see shifts in the way that language is used, you know, at the end, when there is a level of trust there, when they uh, have more respect for each other, that is the moment that the Stark King um, gives the name to Miriam. You know, we never learn it as the readers, but Miriam does. And so it's like language use and the intention behind it shifts as the empathy builds and has as some sort of... Um, healthier, I guess, relationship builds between the different people. Um, cool. Yeah, I really like that. So Jason, you started us in this direction uh, just a minute ago, but I think for the last segment, I just want to open it up generally to thinking about how the novel, we, you know, we've talked about how it's interested in language, um, but even more generally thinking about language as storytelling or kind of rewriting Rumpelstiltskin perhaps, or maybe even just more generally stereotypes or assumptions about each other. Um, so one of the things that I love is that moment that I already mentioned of seeing the subtle shift in Wanda's language related to uh, Miriam's family. So first they are the servants of the devil, but then that breaks down and she starts using words like love uh, when she's around them because sure, her, she builds empathy and she builds connection with them. Um, so what do we think just more generally Novik is doing in terms of 
thinking about the power of storytelling, especially in how it allows us to like relate to people uh, around us. What, how is Novik thinking through that in this novel? I feel like I always go back to the, um, to the very first sentence of the book yep. when thinking about storytelling where Novik says, um, I guess Miriam says, the real story isn't half as pretty as the one you've heard. And she's referencing the Rumpelstiltskin tale and how much she's going to address it and rewrite it. But at the same time, what we end up with, whereas it's, it's, it's not the same Rumpelstiltskin where there's some beautiful damsel who's caught up in his money, like this allegorical money lending problem where she has to keep turning straw into gold. Um, and then it ends happily ever after with her marrying a prince. Instead, we have this story with all of these characters, so many of whom learn to better connect with each other and develop empathy and help people outside. I think that it's kind of a misdirection. We end up with a much prettier story than the one we've heard. And that's almost commentary on, you know, that that line here isn't half, you know, that the story isn't half as as pretty as you've heard. So, you know, the, the fact that we get this beautiful story is suggestive of, you know, what is it, why, why is it that <clears throat> as a society, we've, we've come to view um, the ending of, of um, Rumpelstiltskin as, as a happily ever after, right? You know, if, if, you, if you're viewing this from the perspective of the, the moneylender, or I suppose in this case, the moneylender's daughter, you know, this, this is absolutely not a, a happily ever after. So the entire project of this, this rewriting is to make that point. Absolutely. I'm fascinated by obviously the the introduction of the novel, but then also how in the first few chapters where we're just kind of learning the world, we're learning about Miriam, we see that this story, the Rumpelstiltskin story, is a way that the townspeople uh, demonize Miriam and her family. Uh, and so they build this narrative of, again, I keep going back to this phrase, money lending, money lenders being servants of the devil. And they use Rumpelstiltskin as a way of um, building that idea, the original Rumpelstiltskin. Um, and so this entire town hates Miriam and her family because of the power behind this narrative that we know from reading the story, we know that the story has no um, accuracy within Miriam's life. She is not greedy. She is in fact uh, doing what she needs to do to sustain her family, to provide for her family by stepping into this role as the moneylender. But it's the narrative that she has to break through. Uh, I don't know with the townspeople if she ever kind of successfully does. I don't know if they ever kind of come to see her as someone that isn't the narrative that they've built about uh, Miriam and her family. But in so many other instances, you know, with her relationship with Wanda, as well as just who the Stark are and the relationships that Miriam has with the Stark people, we see so many ways that stories um, that have such power in dictating what we think about people uh, and how we relate to them and interact with them they break down over the course of the novel. And I think exactly what you said, Emily, it makes for a much more beautiful tale to watch the empathy build uh, and all of these different characters across the board. 
I think it goes back to something Jason um, said, I think in the second segment about um, people learning to to use language to understand each other. Um, The story, the the traditional Rumpelstiltskin story is told only from one point of view and bringing in the point of view of the moneylender's daughter and of um, the, the girl who lives outside the village who ends up helping her and of the Tsarina and of the brothers and all of these different characters. We end up with by having these different narrators um, and going through these different stories, we start to see how it all fits together and no one is able to effectively demonize anybody except like maybe Chernona Bog, but. <laughs> maybe him, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, and I think she does this too with um, uh, with with the the Jewish characters and uh, as a you know a culture in the book, and she's she's kind of breaking down this you know um, this what it means to be a money lender, what it means to participate in this business, um, uh, because the the tale of uh, Rumpelstiltskin is is invested with. Um, <clears throat> with that particular um with, with a lot of meaning because of the um because of money lending because of what you know what, what you would call usury and and the the kind of um uh, the, the kind of western um the christian you know meanings behind that this this idea that um, usury was once believed to be um a sin because you um because the act of usury is creating uh, something from nothing, which um, you know is is, um, which is I guess the d- domain of of God. So that there's this mm-hmm. kind of view of that, right? Um, <clears throat> in, um, in in Christian culture, w- which you know we have here in in, in the book, but the um, as well. Um, but you also have. Um, you also have a culture here um, where this is really their only means of survival, where they're, um, and they can lose everything that they have at a moment's notice. Uh, so the, the text kind of pushes back on, on, um, on, on that kind of social uh, understanding of, of money lending. Absolutely. And the story becomes inherently um, powerful purely in the act of centralizing a woman and a Jewish character uh, and Miriam, but then also, as you said, Emily, not leaving it at that, but also bringing into the fold these other characters, both in, um, you know, the, the people kind of directly around Miriam, whether that be Wanda or Stepan, the little brother, um, who have kind of direct interactions with Miriam, but then also people that she has very limited interaction with. And so we get kind of this widespread uh, tale that has so much power just in um, how it's causing us to think about how people interact, how people tell stories about each other. Um, and it's not letting us, it's literally in, in the way that it is written, not letting us sit in one version of a story. Uh, it's forcing us encouraging us maybe is a better word uh, to move between different stories um, and to just reflect on kind of what that means for how we understand uh, what it's talking about. That's awesome. Um, 
Well, I want to say thank you to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation. I know we have had a lot of fun uh, talking about such an awesome book and the really cool things that I think Novik is doing in this novel. I want to say thank you to Jason and Emily for joining. It has been lovely chatting with you both. And then um, I also just want to give a quick reminder to check out our Big Read website. We have many other events that have been posted and will continue to be posted throughout the fall semester. And I'm sure you can find something that interests you related to this book. Uh, There are a lot of things posted up there. So take a look at that. And um, thank you again for tuning in. Bye, everyone.